a series of unfortunate events. Deliverance, a series of unfortunate events. Uh, when I look at the church, when I look at uh, my life, when I look at uh, individual lives and families in the church, I think there's probably no greater single uh, idea that is so critical to our success and so critical to our lives and our fullness and our walk with God than deliverance. Amen. Somebody say amen. Deliverance. We're going to look at it. Uh, we have to separate our topics as we go through this series. It's going to be about five weeks uh, going through the month of July. But I, I, it's important for us to separate so that we can actually see clearly what it is that we're talking about being delivered from. We're going to look at deliverance before salvation. We're going to look at deliverance after salvation. We're going to look at the difference between conviction and condemnation and consequences, right? It's a lot of C's, but they're all different, right? Conviction, right? Condemnation to be condemned, right? And consequences. Consequences is something probably most of us are, are familiar with. In the book of Psalms, chapter 30, verse 5, speaking of the Lord, it says, His anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. There is a very real conviction that comes from the Lord when we live in rebellion and when we live contrary to his will for our lives. It's real. You can say what you want to say and people can tell you don't, don't receive that and, and God wouldn't talk like that or God wouldn't make you feel like that. I'm here to tell you that that's not necessarily true. When we live contrary to the will of God for our lives, when we live in rebellion, there is anger. There are consequences. There is this, this righteousness that God has. And when we deny that, when we combat that, when we rebel against that, you better believe there's going to be some consequences. There's going to be some righteous anger from the Lord. But it says his anger is but for a moment and his favor is for, for our life. Weeping endures for a night, but his joy comes in the morning. When we repent, when we redirect our lives, his anger and his disappointment, it recedes and we find that favor once again. It's one of the great joys of being a Christian. Yesterday, again at home, we got home with some groceries, got them into the house, and it was Chino hot in Chino. So before you can get it into the refrigerator, you know when the milk starts to sweat on the outside of the, of the, the gallon? So Nate comes into the house, and, and he starts rubbing on it. He's been playing outside, so, you know, as soon as he rubs on the milk on the outside where it's all moist, there's dirt all over it. It didn't get on the, in the milk, but, you know, it's still the same thing. Boy, we've got to clean that now before we put it in the refrigerator. What's wrong with you? So Mary yells at him, Nate, stop touching the milk like that. Go wash your hands. Naomi is literally like five feet away, and guess what Naomi does? She walks right into the kitchen, <laughs> starts rubbing on the milk, dirt all over it. So she got smacked. It's always the second one. <laughs> so I was right there, and I seen her, and I just smacked her down. Pow! Girl, you better listen. Go upstairs and wash your hands. It was like 5 o'clock. Come 7 o'clock, I'm looking around like, where's Naomi? <laughs> she went upstairs. She said, I'm going to sleep. She was sad. You know, she knew that I was angry. She knew that she was in trouble. You know, Mary's like, you need to go get Naomi. So... I call her downstairs, and she's acting like she's asleep, but you can tell that she's just sad. And I pick her up, and she hugs me so tight. I said, baby, I'm sorry that I had to smack you, but you have to listen. If you don't learn to listen in this life and in this world, you're going to experience a lot of pain. I said, you heard us telling your brother not to do that. And for whatever reason, something inside of you <laughs> said, I'm going to go do that. 
And I feel for her, you know why? Because that same something is in me. <laughs> Where we know what not to do. We know that there's gonna be consequences. We actually just saw somebody else get in trouble for doing the same thing, but something inside of us says, do it. <laughs> so I held her tight, baby, I love you, I'm sorry. But it had to happen. I'd rather do this with you than the consequences later on in life are gonna be much more severe than this. If you don't learn how to stop doing this, right? So that weeping for her or that sadness for her or that pain, you know, it was there and it was real and it affected her. But in just a moment, she could feel the love of her father again, right? She could apologize for what she did. She could say that I know I shouldn't have done it. I will, I will try not to do that in the future. And then that, that burden, it didn't stay on her and it didn't stay on me. I didn't say that's it for the rest of the night. I'm not talking to you and we'll see how the next week goes. No, the love is right there again. That's what the psalmist is saying when he says, uh, <clears throat> His anger is but for a moment, but his favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. That's what it means to repent. That's what it means to redirect your life and get back right with the Lord. So why is this series not just called Deliverance? It's called Deliverance, a series of unfortunate events, because there truly is a series of unfortunate events that have led each of us into bondage in these areas of our lives. It's not just something that happened once. There was a series of unfortunate events. They led us into bondage. And now for many of us, we are in all these different places of our life. We need deliverance. We are bound. We need help. We need the power of God to come and deliver us. For example, I might say that there's been a series of unfortunate events in relation to how my mind processes the concept of other people. Right? When I look at other people, what does my mind immediately do? How does my mind immediately process this idea of not self, but, but others? I might look to them for approval. I might look at them as competition, or I might look at them as resources to be used. Depending on how I've looked at life and how I've been raised and all these unfortunate events that have happened in my lifetime, it's going to affect the way that I actually look at people and process information. So when I say approval, it might be because I was infatuated with hearing my parents or teachers say, good job, Vaughn, when you're small, right? How many of you have kids that you can tell they love it when you tell them good job, right? When you pat them on the back when you cheer at them at a, at a sporting event, whatever it might be. But then what happens to us, because that starts at a young age, we get addicted to it and we need it and we, we strive for it and we're actually willing to do anything to get that kind of approval from other people. Anybody that has a position of authority in your life, all of a sudden you're looking for that, right? Whether it's a coach, whether it's a boss, even in the ministry, those who, who kind of lead you, you're looking for their approval. Why? Because when you were a child and the first time somebody said, great job, girl, great job, boy, way to go, I'm glad you did it, right? We had a crazy weekend. I already told you half of the story. Let me tell you about Niall taking the training wheels off of his bike. So I was tired, and I knew that this was going to be a, a, a serious endeavor. We, we come pulling back up with the groceries, and Mary says, hey, maybe we should take Niall's training wheels off. I'm like, nope. I got to take him to the park and let him learn on the grass like a good dad, right? So when he falls, it doesn't hurt, and that's just too much work right now. So I'm sitting down, and then the Spirit of God convicted me, stop being lazy, watching the other kids ride, and he's still got his training wheels moving like two miles an hour. I was like, do something, Vaughn. So I grabbed his bike. I said, son, I'm taking this, the training wheels off. He almost fell on the floor crying of fear, like, no, 
I'm not ready, Dad. I'm not ready. I want to wait till I'm four. His birthday's in three days. I want to wait till I'm four. He's saying all this stuff. I start taking them off, throw the things off, and it was a significant emotional experience for him. Imagine, it's supposed to be this fun experience, right? So he's on the bike, I'm behind him, running with him, sweating, I can barely run with the boy. I'm sweating, trying to hold him the whole time, and he's crying so emotional. Daddy, I don't want to do it, I don't want to do it. It was crazy. The neighbors are all coming out of the house, like staring at me, because I'm yelling, you know me, I'm like, I'm like, stop crying, stop crying. <laughs> Make me look stupid in front of all these neighbors. Stop crying, ride this bike, boy. <laughs> so I'm holding him, and then Mary tries to come over, and like the whole time he's like, Daddy, one more time, and I can go with Mommy? No, you're going to ride. Mary tries to come over, stay away. After a half hour, he actually was able, able to ride like one direction, you know, and, and he couldn't really turn yet or anything like that, but, but I told him, like, I started cheering and clapping for him. Way to go, Nile, great job. You did it, son, you did it, son. There was like a half a smile with tears. <laughs> so we took, a, we took him in the house. That was on Friday. Took him in the house, everything was, everything was good, everything was fine. He, he gets out of the shower, though. Listen to this, he gets out of the shower, and, and uh, I'm downstairs with the other two, and Mary's upstairs with him, and Mary tells me that he, he came up to her, and he said, Mom, did you see me? <laughs> right? Mom, did you see me? Because even though it was so dramatic, and even though he was so overwhelmed, and he was sad, and he was scared, and he didn't want to do it, that, that need for approval is still there. Right? It's still there, and he wants it. Mom, did you see me? Yeah, baby, I saw you. You did so good. Yesterday, there was no time to be messing around. It was discipleship 201. We took him back out on his bike, and now he can ride like he's been riding his whole life. In two days, right? An hour and a half, the boy learned how to ride. He can turn. He's looking at other people while he's riding. I'm like, boy, look straight. Look where you're going. <laughs> but that need for approval, as a, as a parent right now, I'm not really thinking about it like that, like I was when Nate asked me his question, but look at how... Later on, he might say, man, there was a series of unfortunate events in my life that led me to always be looking for approval from those in positions of authority for me. It started with my dad when I was riding a bike, then when I started sports, then when I went looking for a job. I'm always looking for approval, and I'm willing to do anything to get it. And now I'm bound to that. If nobody tells me, good job. If mom says, I didn't see you, I'm hurt, right? I'm emotionally uh, damaged because of that. I said earlier, maybe it's approval that I'm looking for. Maybe it's competition, because at a young age in sports, right, you learn this. There ain't enough glory to go around. And other people want it, too. That's what I learned in sports. As soon as I signed up, I was like, oh, everybody wants to be the man? <laughs> everybody wants the ball? Everybody wants to be cheered? Everybody wants people waving a sign for them? Well, look, there ain't enough to go around, so we're going to fight for it. And I want to be the best, and I want all the glory, right? So people become competition for you. Now, it's easy to recognize that for a young person in sports, but look in your lives and see if you ain't in competition with people that you live with, members of your family, people that you work with. At a young age, it starts a series of unfortunate events that turns you into the type of person that says people are competition. It's not family, right? It's not community. It's not, I'll, I'll have less so that you can have enough. Not even more, just enough. It ain't that, right? They're competition, even in the ministry, right? Like I said, sometimes we're looking for approval. 
from those who are leading you or maybe from other church peers or, or leaders. Same thing here with competition. Well, how many people are in their church? Because of a series of unfortunate events as a child, now even as an adult and as a Christian, you're looking and people are competition. You see it in a lot of areas, right? The first boy you liked, the first girl you liked, then you realize that other people like them too. You want to get into school, you want to go to college, and you realize a whole bunch of other people want to go there and there's only a certain amount of spots. You go to get a job and there's like 18 people on the interview. Right? People become competition. You devalue them. Your brain doesn't work the way maybe God would have it to. <clears throat> then, this is a tough one for me, and I would have loved to leave it out, but then you can begin to look at people as resources, right? When you realize that other people had what you wanted or that they could be used to help you get what you wanted, man, that was a tough season, wasn't it? You're like, dang, they have that. I want it. Dang, they, they could be the missing piece between what I don't have and what I do want, and that person can help me get what I want, and then they become resources, right? How can I use that person to get me what I want? I remember I had friends in high school that had cars. It was like, that person has a car. That's a resource. That can get me where I want to go. That person has money. Well, once I use the car from this person to get where I want to go, I ain't going to have no money, so I need another person with money to get me what I want when I get there. That's a series of unfortunate events, church. Because when you're young and you don't have things, people that do have them, they become resources to you. And again, when you look at the ministry, you look at somebody that's gifted, somebody that God has blessed, and you know what you say? Man, that person's a resource. They could be used to elevate what God is doing here in this church. See, deliverance is a, is a complicated subject, church. And the things that we need to be delivered from are many. My mind had begun to work improperly because of a series of unfortunate events. And I hate to be the one to break it to you this morning, but I'm, I'm led to believe that the same is true of many of you. There's been a series of unfortunate events in your life and your brain don't quite work the way that it should. And we don't quite process things the way that we should. And we don't quite understand things the way that we should. Romans chapter 12 verse two says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, what I just explained to you, that's what this world is like. It's like that for me and it's like that for you. And God says, don't be conformed to that. Don't be molded into that. Don't stay that way. Don't remain that way. Don't put a Band-Aid on that. Don't try to fix it up. Don't try to deny that it's there. It's there and it's real, but don't be conformed to it. He says, be transformed. How are you going to be transformed? He says, by the renewing of your mind. You have to actually think differently. You have to actually process information differently. One of my favorite movies of all time, many of you know this, is The Matrix. And Morpheus says to Neo in The Matrix, he says, you've been in prison for so long that you don't even realize it anymore. And the reason is because it's a prison for your mind. He says, you're bound. You need to be delivered. You're a prisoner, and you don't even think you're a prisoner. That's the worst kind of imprisonment when you think you're free, but you're actually in prison. And Morpheus says to Neo, the reason why that can happen to you is because physically you're out here walking around like you're free, but in your mind you're in prison, right? And that's why God says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be set free from where you are. See, spiritual imprisonment 
often comes before physical imprisonment. When you're bound in your mind, when you're bound in your spirit, that will lead you into being physically bound, right? Like I said earlier, when I see people as resources to give me what I want, when I want, how I want, and I will, I'm willing to take it from them, that's a mental and spiritual um, uh, binding that I'm under or force of oppression, slavery that I'm under. And eventually, you know where that's going to lead me? Where I break the law and I take things from people and then I physically will be in that same kind of prison that I was already in mentally and spiritually. I was already bound. And then it works itself out or manifests in the physical. In the reverse, spiritual freedom, mental freedom, and deliverance will also often lead to physical freedom. Does that make sense? When you get set free in your heart, when you get set free in your mind, when you get delivered from that old stinking way of thinking, right, you'll, you'll start to see deliverance in your actual physical life. Bless you. So what is deliverance? Here's the definition. Liberation. The action of being rescued or set free. When we talk about deliverance, you need to be thinking about liberation, liberty. Where the, spirit, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty or there is freedom. I was bound, but now I'm free. Right? The actual process, it says, the action of being rescued or set free. People who get delivered know that they need to be rescued. If you think that you are like kind of just floating around and it's going to be all right, then deliverance might not come to you. But if you look and you say, I'm drowning, there's no life raft, there's no floaty, there's nothing, I need to be rescued, well then there's probably a good chance that when you call out to the right person, you could be delivered. Amen. To be rescued, to be set free. You know you're in prison. You know you're bound. You know that as hard as you shake on this, uh, uh, this gate, that it ain't going to open up. Somebody has to actually open it up for you. As hard as you try, you can't stay afloat. I saw, uh, I think it's why I had this dream, but I, I think it came from a Facebook post that somebody said, it was on the news, that a father had a kayak flip over and he held his child up on, uh, over the water and he drowned and died, but the child lived. It's always one of my biggest fears is drowning. And here's, here's the hardest part for me uh, is with, if you're with your family, like you have to watch that happen, right? And I know that I can only tread water for so long. I sink like nobody's business when I get into water. And to think that I'm trying to hold Mary up, to think that I'm trying to hold the kids up long enough for somebody to come and save us, here's what I know in my heart, I cannot do it. We ain't talking about 20 minutes or 30 minutes, we're talking about a minute at the most, right? So I had this dream, and it was, it was very difficult because I didn't see any of your faces, but I knew there were church people there. And I was like fighting, like look, every man for themselves. <laughs> and it hurt me because it's like, man, what, what should I be doing? Like, how should I be trying to help people? And you know what I was thinking? Like, I gotta save Mary. She's gotta get onto a piece of this boat or this ship or whatever it is, and whoever's coming, we just gonna have to fight the water because you're not gonna take it from her and you're not gonna cause her to go down with you. And then I'm thinking about my kids, and there's only two hands, right? So this idea of deliverance and being set free, being liberated, knowing that you do not have what it takes, uh, it's very significant if you, can, if you can personalize it. The idea of, man, if somebody doesn't help me, there is no help for me. Some of us think we can tread water for a long time. Some of us think we can hold ourselves up and we can hold up those who we love. The reality is we can't. We cannot. You cannot. 
And if you stay in that prison for your mind where you believe you can or you believe it's not so significant, you'll never cry out for the help that you need. You gotta be set free to be able to see the world for what it is, to be able to see your life for what it is and the help that we need. So I have a song. It's gonna play a few seconds of it. I'll tell you when to stop it, Ray, but I think this is gonna help us understand uh, the, first, the first area that we're gonna look at of, of deliverance. So you can go ahead, Ray. How many of you guys heard that song before? Amen. It's a hard knock life. We don't even know who Santa Claus is. At one point she said, it'd be better if we don't even fight, right? It's a hard knock life. What we're going to talk about this week, week one, hard knock life, uh, is deliverance from sin and condemnation. Deliverance from sin and condemnation. Revelation 3.20 says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Say knock. knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Some of us are hard-headed and hard of hearing. I know it's not you, but look around at somebody who you think is hard-headed and hard of hearing here in this place. We are super seniors in the school of hard knocks. <laughs> we cannot seem to graduate. It really has become a hard knock life. Jesus is literally knocking so hard at the door of our hearts, knocking so hard at the door of our minds, and we just continue to live a hard knock life because we will not open up. We will not let him in to our prison. We will not allow him to let us free, to deliver us from our prison, and it truly becomes a hard knock life. Why would we do that? Why would we allow him to knock and knock? I'm not the one that says he's knocking, he says it. He says, behold, I stand at the door of your life, of your heart, of your mind, of your situation, of your circumstances, of your bondage. I'm right there at the door and I am knocking. Let me in, let me help. Let me save you. We're treading water and drowning, but we think we're okay. We're bound hand and foot, but we think we're free. So we deny and we ignore the knock. 
Here's how we know that we're bound by sin. James 1.14 says, Each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Your own desires, my own desires. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. James says, you're bound. You have desires. You have a series of unfortunate events that have made you want things you shouldn't want, act in a way you shouldn't act, think in a way that you shouldn't think. Those desires, when they conceive, they bring forth sin. When you mix that desire with an actual action, with an actual thought, with an actual word, with an actual touch, with an actual experience, what you desired in your mind, what you desired in your heart, right, it brings forth sin. It conceives, right? You bring the two together, a thought and an action, they make a baby called sin. It says when sin is full grown, it brings forth death. So when that... Way to go, Nile. Great job. Mom, did you see me? That little baby, when it's full grown, and it's a grown man that says, I'll do anything to be seen. I'll do anything to get encouragement. I'll lie, cheat, and steal just to get that moment of glory that should belong to God. It'll bring forth death in his life. Like it's brought forth death in my life. Like it's brought forth death in many of your lives. In different areas. First and foremost, Jesus came to deliver us from sin and death. Here's the issue. If you're looking for Jesus to deliver you from other things before you're looking to Jesus to deliver you from sin and death, don't expect to get these other things because first and foremost, he came to deliver you from sin and death. Oh God, give me a great relationship. No, let's deal with your sin and death first. Oh God, give me a great job. Deliver me from this poverty. Oh no, no, let's deal with your sin and death first. Oh, God, deliver me from my selfishness. Deliver me from my lying. Deliver me from these toxic relationships and this way of thinking. No, let's deal with your sin and death first. First and foremost, I came to give you life and life more abundantly. The enemy came to steal, kill, and destroy to give you death. I want to deliver you from death, he says. Because of Adam and Eve, we're all born into sin. We're already condemned. We're already drowning when we're born. We're born into a prison. A prison for our minds, a prison for our souls. Everything we do and see, think about it like this. Take a child. You as that child, a child you know, your own child. And whether you want to believe it or not, we're all born into sin. We're all born into death because of Adam and Eve. None of us are free. We're born into that prison for our mind. And literally everything we do, everything we see, it either uh, combats that reality of sin and imprisonment and, and being bound, or it reinforces it. So think about the things you say to your kids. Is it combating the reality of being bound by sin, or is it reinforcing it? Think about the things that you have said to you. Does that combat the reality? Like, do people talk to you and say, listen, that's not right. That's not real. Don't think like that. Just because you've experienced this and because you see it all the time, that's not what God has for you. There's a whole other reality that you are unaware of. That one leads to death and this one leads to life. The things and the conversations you have, do they combat the reality of being bound and, and, and uh, uh, a slave to sin or do they reinforce it? The way you talk, the way you think, the way that people speak into you, does it reinforce being bound or does it set you free and combat it? 
John 3.18 says, He who believes in Jesus is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So it's not necessarily just an outward physical denial of Jesus that makes you condemned. It's saying if you don't believe in him, you're already condemned. Does that make sense this morning? You don't have to come out and say, I hate God and I hate Jesus to be condemned. If you don't come out and say, I love God, I love Jesus, he is the Lord of my life, he says you're already condemned. <laughs> you're born condemned. You're born bound. When your kids come out of the womb, you should have some little handcuffs and just throw them on them. This is the reality of where you are right now, son of mine, daughter of mine. And many of us, right, just imagine every year for your birthday, all you get is a bigger set of handcuffs. <laughs> Man, that's some imagery for you, isn't it? So when you walk out into the world, what you should see is a bunch of people. Do you know Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Are you saved by the blood of Jesus? No? Oh, let me see, let me see your handcuffs then, because you're wearing them. Just like I was until I got what? Delivered from sin and death. The one that has the keys came and set me free. There's no in between. There's no gray area. That's tough for people to understand. My mom and I were having a great conversation yesterday uh, about what it means to be saved and what it means to not be saved, about world religions and the different things that people believe. And... You know, I'm, I'm very simple, I'm very black and white. I know the truth, so it might come off as hard and it might come off as harsh, but what I believe is what I say either puts people further into bondage or it combats that and has the potential to set them free. There's no salvation in any other name other than Jesus Christ, which means it doesn't matter what else you believe in, you're going to hell. And when you know that, how you express that and how you love on people and how you try to show them who Jesus is and the love of God and the power of God, that is what the Spirit does in you to help other folks come to that light and come to that knowledge and that understanding. But if you want to be wishy-washy and act like there's other ways and act like it's kind of okay and if you're just a good person and as long as you believe and as long as you do your best and all that, then it's going to be okay, well, then you ain't going to go anywhere and nothing's going to be accomplished because that is a lie from hell. That's what the devil does. When I told my mom, we were talking yesterday, I said, listen, I said, the devil is so smart and he's so good at what he does. He won't make you a devil worshiper if all he has to do is make you, I won't tell you what I said, <laughs> <laughs> I, have to, I have to watch my words because I don't want you to take this the wrong way. But what I said was, if all he has to make you is a Catholic, if all he has to make you is a witness, if all he has to make you is a Mormon, because you got Jesus in the name, but you don't have him in power and in spirit and in truth, why would he make you a devil worship if he can just make you somebody who believes, hey, you're going to be like Jesus, the same way that he has earth, you're going to get your own planet. I don't have to make him a devil worshiper who doesn't believe in God. I can make him somebody who believes in the wrong God or has a false reality of who God is, right? Why go so far if you don't have to? The reason I say I have to watch my words is because I know some great Catholics who really believe in the Trinity, who really believe in Jesus as their salvation, who have had a relationship with the Holy Spirit and have been filled with the Holy Spirit. Those other ones that I mentioned, it's not the same because Jesus is not God in those other religions. He's real and he exists just like he, he exists in, in Islam. We're having a conversation because um, somebody had passed away. A prayer chain went out to a bunch of people. And one of the people was a Muslim. And she, and she wrote back and said, oh, I'll be praying in the name of Allah. And what I told her was, man, I'm putting all my business out there today. 
What I told her was, listen, <clears throat> here's the truth and the reality for me. I don't need your prayers to Allah because he ain't God. So just because you want to say that it's, it's Allah, another name for God, another name for Jehovah, that you think we're praying to the same God, we're not. My God is a trinity. My God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. If, if you deny any of the three, you deny him altogether. You can't have just the Father, Islam. You can't deny the Son, uh, Mormons and Witnesses. You don't get to have my God. And I don't need your prayers because I know that if they're not going to God, they're going to the devil. There's no in-between. We're not going to have this kumbaya kind of relationship. And that's not to say I'm better than you, and that's not to say that, that something's wrong with you. What it's to say is the truth is the truth, and the truth will set you free. Not a portion of the truth. A little leaven leavens the whole lump is what the Bible says. So I can say without hesitation, you're all condemned, just like I was condemned. It don't matter how far condemned you are. Drowning and dying is drowning and dying. It don't matter if you die five feet from the shore or all the way out in the middle of somewhere. In the middle of nowhere, I should say. Somebody recently invited me out to go deep sea fishing, and I'll be honest with you, I'm scared. <laughs> I'm scared. Like I said, if the, if the ship goes down, you ain't going to see Pastor Vaughn. You're going to see a crazy man trying to live. <laughs> but it don't matter, right? We hear about kids drowning in pools every summer. Family party, it's 4th of July, everybody's having a great time. Kids drowning in the jacuzzi. Right. It don't matter if a ship goes down in the middle of nowhere or if you're in a backyard party. To drown and die is to drown and die, right? So when it comes to religions, if you don't have Christ, you're drowning and dying. It don't matter how far away or how close you may be. Psalm 25, 16. Listen to what David says. Psalm 25, 16. He's talking to God like we should be. That's what psalms are, and they're songs. They're songs of worship, songs of, of requests from God. David says, turn yourself to me and have mercy on me, for I am desolate and afflicted. Right? I'm drowning, and I know it. The troubles of my heart have enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Look on my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. You see the difference in his cry and in his worship? He knows how jacked up he is. He knows how he feels, which is usually where we're pretty good when we talk to God. This is how I feel, Lord. But before he tells God how he feels, he says, I'm jacked up and tore up. Then he says, this is how I feel. And then when he's done telling God how he feels, he says, forgive me for my sins. I know it's my fault. I'm a sinner. Forgive me all my sins. Verse 19, consider my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with cruel hatred. Keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I have put my trust in you. Man, in four verses, five verses, 16 through 20, you get a lot. This is my condition. This is how I feel. I know I'm a sinner. I know that there are people who hate me and want my demise. And I know that you're the only one that can deliver me. And please do, because I've put my trust in you, which is what it means to actually be saved, is to put your trust and hope and salvation into Jesus. David understands what I want you to understand this morning. Jesus is the only one that could or would ever deliver you. There's not multiple ways. There's not a bunch of ways to heaven, to God. There's only one. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. 
It's probably one of the most significant scriptures in all the Bible. Talking about the Father, it says that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He's perfect. It takes a sinless man to be a valid substitution for a sinless man. Listen to that again. It takes a sinless man, Jesus, to be a valid substitution for a sinful man or sinful woman. You cannot be substituted by somebody who's also sinful. Does that make sense? That's like you get caught robbing a bank with your buddy, and then you say, uh, he's going to take it. He's going to stand in my spot for me. He's guilty too. What are you talking about? He's guilty. He cannot take your spot. So think about that when it comes to sin. One single sin, not the multitude of sin that I have and the multitude of sin that you have. What the scripture means is this. For one single sin of one single person, it would have to take a perfect sinless person to forgive it. To be able to say, I'll stand in Vaughn's place for that one thing he said that one day. He'd have to be perfect. So God the Father says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He's perfect. He's the only sinless one. So when you think about what it takes to be saved, the reason why Jesus is the only one that could save you is he's the only one that's been sinless ever, 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 ever. We don't make it far at all. My daughter has a multitude of sins at eight years old. Just touching the milk yesterday was one of them, but it started much earlier than that. So he's sinless. John 1.29 says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said this, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So not only does he have to be sinless in order to be a substitute for somebody who has sin, and there's a bunch of us, he also has to be infinite. His capacity to take sin has to be infinite because he doesn't take the sins of just Vaughn and one sin. He takes all of my sins, and it says the sins of the world. Could you imagine the capacity of somebody to be able to take the sins of the world upon them? They have to be infinite. How many of you feel the burden when somebody talks to you about their sin and you feel like you're taking it on? You feel like, man, this is heavy on me. I can't believe you, you're experiencing what you've experiencing. You've done what you've done. You've thought how you've thought, and you're, you're in this mud. And because I'm a Christian, I'm your brother, I'm supposed to just get in there with you and help you. But it's a burden, and it's heavy, and it hurts. And my flesh gets angry, but my spirit says, don't be angry. That's how you were too. Amen. Could you imagine Jesus saying, I'm taking all that from everybody? Do, we, do any of us really comprehend the burden that he took on him? You know when he's on the cross and he cries out, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? You know what he's saying? He's saying, I feel this burden I've never felt before. I have the sins of the world on me, and now that I have this on me, you're going to turn your back on me? Why? Because a perfect God cannot be in the presence of sin. So not only does he have to take all of our sin willingly, not, not just one. In that moment, he had all your sin. Think of everything you've ever done and everything you will do. And Jesus, on purpose, with knowledge, said, I'll take that. I'll take that, Junior. I'll take that, Mary. I'll take that, Jen. I'll take that, Berna. I'll take that, Vaughn. It ain't like, you know how sometimes you take on a burden you didn't really know you were taking it on? You're like, dang, I got a little heavy right there. Who put something on me? It wasn't like that. He knew exactly what it was. And he says, I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll take it. He has to be infinite. I can barely handle my own sin. 
and he takes all of ours. So you have a perfect sinless man who can be a substitute, and then you have this infinite God who can take on all of the sin of all of humanity. And then you wonder why I say there's only one way to be saved. And you wonder why I say all of the religions will lead you straight to hell. And you wonder why he has to be a trinity, right? Why he has to be a father who can make his son who knew no sin to be sin, and he has to also be a spirit who can come and live inside of you and confirm that that's a truth and that's a reality. Who else can do that? What other religion offers you that? They say that there's no absolute truth in the world. You want to bet? John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There are not multiple ways. He says, the way. There's only one. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. There are not multiple truths. Don't buy that from people. Oh, your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. No. One of us is wrong. <laughs> and one of us is a liar. Baby, I'm faithful. No, you're not. You're a dog. Well, one of us is telling the truth. And one of us is lying. I'm the way, I'm the truth, and finally says, I am the life. There's only one life. You know what that means? If you think you're living life outside of Christ, you know what's actually happening? There ain't life there. There's death there. That's the whole point of this prison for your mind and this prison for your spirit is you think you're living life and you're actually dying. I took the kids to see Despicable Me 3. Don't waste your money. The other two were way better. But the preview for the movie is, uh, one of the previews is called Coco. Have you guys seen the preview for that? Where it's, uh, uh, it's all these people who are dead. Some of y'all know about this. I think it's, uh, it's like a, a Mexican tradition, uh, Dia de los Muertos, something like that, right? <laughs> Go ahead and uh, scrub that off of the message. Uh, you know what I'm saying? And you have all the skulls and all the painting and all that kind of stuff. They have a new kid's cartoon for that. And it says, once a year, all these dead people come back to visit their family in the culture, right? And then this movie is about a kid who something happens and then he goes to live with the dead people. So he's still alive and has flesh and he's in this world now with all these skeletons and skulls and bones. Please believe me, my kids will not be going to see that. But you know what's sad? that that's really the reality of people who think they're living life apart from Christ. You're walking around with dead people. You're dead and you're walking around with dead people. It's like a zombie movie. And we think life is so good. And you know how crazy it is? For anybody who's ever come out of that, like I came out of that and I was delivered from that, I remember thinking to myself when I got delivered, like, oh my God, I can't believe how dead I was. I can't believe how dead I was and how alive I thought I was and how fun those experiences I thought they were and how I thought everybody else was losing their mind and they were crazy and this church stuff was so stupid. But then when you hit truth or when truth slaps you upside the head, it's crazy. And you got all these bumps and bruises and you're all deformed. You know why? Because you've been living a hard knock life. God's been knocking and you just won't listen. You won't open up. Romans 7, 14, 21. You see anything there? 7, 14, 21. This is worth remembering. We talk about 7 being the number of completion or fullness, right? So if you multiply that by 2, you get 14. You multiply that by 3, and you get 21. This is like so far and so complete and so deep and so utterly done. 
Listen to what it says. Romans 7, 14. How do you know you're bound? How do you know you need to be delivered? Paul starts off 7, 14. I am carnal. I'm sold under sin. I'm a prisoner. For what I'm doing, I don't understand. What I want to do, that I do not practice. And what I hate, that's what I actually do. If then I do what I don't want to do, I agree that the law is good. But now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. It's crazy. For I know that in me, that's in my flesh, there's nothing good dwelling. It's present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. The good that I want to do, I don't do. But the evil that I don't want to do, that's what I actually practice. Now, if I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wants to do good. <laughs> Talk about completion. This is being completely bound by sin. Paul is saying it's not just me and the way that I think. He says evil dwells with me. It's here. It's in me. I want to do the right thing, I do the wrong thing. I do the right thing for a little while, and the next thing you know, I'm doing the wrong thing again. You know why? Because evil is a prison and holds me prisoner. It holds my mind prisoner. It holds my soul and my spirit prisoner. This is Paul the Apostle, one of the greatest Christians ever to walk the face of the planet. What he's saying is, it's in me. And the only way to get it out is to be delivered. Verse 24 of that same scripture, Paul says this, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I got to be delivered. I'm carnal. I'm sold under sin. I am a slave to sin, he says. It's in me. I wish that all of us could understand. If you've been saved, then praise God. Remember for those who are not that they're sold under sin. It's like being trafficked. When people sell their kids into sex slavery, eight years old, nine years old, 10 years old, selling them into sex slavery for money. That's what it's like when you're born and when it comes to where the condition of your soul. Paul says we've been sold into sin. You already belong to your slave master. And then Paul says, now that I know who will deliver me, I cannot deliver myself. I cannot be set free. I can run, but I can't escape. Somebody has to actually come in and deal with my sin, deliver me from the sin that dwells in me. So Revelation 3.20, where we started, remember what it said. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. <laughs> if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Jesus is the only one. He says, I know that sin's dwelling in you. I know it's there. That's why I came. <laughs> I came to deal with it. But I cannot break in to break you out. You have to let me in in order to be delivered. So I knock, and I knock, and I knock, and I knock, and I knock. See, salvation is a condition, not an experience. People are looking for an experience when you should be looking for a condition. People are saying, I can't wait. You know, I hear about it, and I heard that person testify, and I saw this experience, and people were weeping, and there's something happened during worship, and I want that experience. I want that experience. No, Jesus comes to tell you the truth so that you can understand your condition. To be saved is a condition, not an experience or a location, right? Everybody who's saved get on this side. This is the saved location. 
And everybody who's not, get on this side, and that's the unsaved location. That's not how it works. Everybody who's had an experience, get over here because you had an experience. That means it's real, right? And if you have had no experience, then you stay over here because it ain't real and you're not saved. That's a lie, but many of us have had a series of unfortunate events that have caused you to believe that. I don't know if you noticed, but everything we've talked about so far can be thought and can be seen and can be accomplished without the need of a physical world, right? This idea of being bound by sin, it's just like the Matrix. If you remember the movie, they were in this ugly world, and then Neo would sit down in a chair, and they'd take this giant spike thing, remember, and they'd stick it in the back of his head. And then physically, his body would stay there, but then spiritually, <laughs> right? Spiritually, he'd, he'd be in this new world, right? Where there was reality, and he could touch things, he could feel things. But in the physical, he was really in this, this seat, this chair. Salvation being a condition is very, very similar. The idea is this. It don't matter where you are, what your situation, what your circumstance is, either you know you're bound by sin, either you know that you're a slave to sin, and that somebody can come in and save you. It has nothing to do with where you are. It has nothing to do with your experience or your spouse or your bank account. It has nothing to do with any of that. It, it could not exist. You know what happened to me when I got saved? I thought, I thought that the world was going to come to an end. <laughs> you think I'm lying, but I'm telling you the, the truth. God's honest truth. The moment that I really realized that I was saved, I thought it was going to be like that movie, The Truman Show, and like this, everything was going to roll up around me, and I was going to be in heaven, and God was going to be like, finally! It's all over now. All those people, they were, just, they were just basically paid actors to get you to this point where you realize what's really going on in your life. That sounds crazy to a lot of you, but it really ties into what I'm trying to tell you this morning, that it had nothing to do with the physical world. It was all about the condition of my heart. It was all about the condition of my mind to be without Christ. And then to actually find him in that moment, the physical world, to me, it was just God orchestrating all these things to get me to a place where I could understand I needed to be delivered. <clears throat> but I'm still here. <laughs> and you guys are still here. And I feel like Paul, you know what Paul said? He said, to die is gain. I want to go to that place. To live is Christ, to die is gain. So to die as gain means that Paul's like, man, I want, I want it to just end so I can be in the presence of God and be in heaven. He says to live as Christ. What he's saying is, if I'm going to live here, I have to die like Christ and spread his word and his love and his power. Those are the two options Paul had. I feel like those are the two options I have. I would have much rather, to be honest with you, at that moment, man, I wish he would have just brought me on home. He says, no, you don't get to come home. You got to go tell other people that they're bound and they can be set free. Acts 16, 6. Last two scriptures. We're going to finish up this morning. Remember, we're talking about deliverance and bondage and all these things, right? Acts 16, 6 says, or excuse me, 16, 16. Now it happens as they went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with the spirit of divination met us. A slave girl who's possessed means she needs to be what? Delivered from her slavery and from her possession. She has a spiritual possession and a physical slavery and slave master that she's under. Don't think about her as just some random girl. Think about her as you. You have a physical slavery that you're sold under in this world, and you have a spiritual slavery that you need to be delivered from. A certain slave girl possessed with the spirit of divination, she met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. 
this girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. You would think that it'd be nice to have people know who you are, what you're there to do, and go before you announcing you, but it annoyed Paul because he's like, look, this woman is under possession. She is a slave. She's bound and she needs to be set free. I don't need the testimony of the enemy and of the demons to tell people who I am and what I came for. Shut up and come out of her in the name of Jesus. He came out that very hour, delivered that very hour. But when her masters saw that her, their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities, brought them to the magistrates and said, these men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city. They teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans to receive or observe. So think about that. These, these masters of the slave girl, they would use her and say, tell people their fortune. How much you want? What do you want to know? What do you want to hear? 50 bucks, she'll tell you what you need. And they're getting all this money because they're using her. Like I started the message today. You might not feel like them, but that's how we are. When we use people to get what we want, to fulfill ourselves, that's what they're doing to her. So because they lose their profit, they say, oh, these two, these two are troublemakers. The multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely bound. So you know what happens when you've been set free and you set other people free or you're used to set other people free? Please believe me, you are going to be challenged. You are going to be attacked. Your family is going to be attacked. You're going to be ridiculed. People who used to be in your church are going to talk trash about you. People who used to actually listen and want God to move in their life think that they don't need you anymore. What did Paul and Silas do? They got set free. They see this young woman. They're coming to talk about Jesus. She's bound. And they say, in the name of Jesus, be loose, be set free. She's set free. And all of a sudden, they're in prison because of it. We recently had a conference, and they said that being a, being a pastor, being in the ministry, is the second, third, third most dangerous uh, uh, profession in the world. When you, when you couple attacks from people and suicide rate, it's more dangerous to be a pastor than anything else. Three other things in the world. That's crazy, isn't it? But then you read stuff like this and you realize, hey, this is the life. People think it's all preaching. Preaching is a small part of what it means to be a pastor, church, just in case you didn't know. That's why a lot of people say, hey, it'd be better just keep your mouth shut. Take your deliverance and go sit down somewhere. Don't tell anybody else that they could be delivered. See, but what happens when God takes your heart and changes it, right? And he puts his heart in, like Paul, he said, to live is Christ. You just realize that, hey, this is, this is life. This is life. Threw him into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them secure. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. They're bound again, right? Verse 25, but at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. 
And you wonder why I tell you you need to show up for worship? You think it's just because I want one more voice singing? No, there's something about knowing who God is, praying and singing to him for who he is that provides not only freedom for you, but freedom for others. What do you do when you're going through it? What do you do when you're broke? What do you do when you're tired? What do you do when your kids are under attack? What do you do when your, uh, your pride is under attack from people? Do you pray and read and worship or do you complain and stay far from God and act like, hey, it's my time to focus on me and I'm just going to do my own thing for a while? What's wrong with us? Remember when we learned about stereotypes and we said, let's, do, let's be real Christians? This is what real Christians do. You take your deliverance, you offer it to others. If that ends you up bound and in prison because of it, you don't cry about it, you just go to prison and you sing and you worship while you're in prison. Because salvation is what? A condition, right? It's not an experience. This doesn't feel like a salvation experience. I'm in jail. Well, if salvation was an experience and I'd have to apologize to you, but it's not. It's your condition, either you're saved or you're not. At midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, singing hymns to God. The prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Immediately all the doors were opened, everyone's chains were loosed, and the keeper of the prison, awaking from his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing that the prisoners had fled, he drew his sword. He was about to kill himself. But Paul called out with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm! For we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in, fell down trembling before Paul. This is the prison keeper. And Silas fell down trembling before, before Paul and Silas, and he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said to him, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Amen. See, when you've been delivered in the spiritual, the physical holds no power over you. Think about that for a second. Here they are in prison, worshiping and praying, and we're talking about being set free. We're talking about being delivered. They're praying, singing. It says that there's an earthquake. All the doors fly open. All the chains come falling off of them, which means they've been set free, but they don't have to go anywhere. You know why? Because salvation is a condition, not an experience or a location. I'm just as free sitting in this prison cell as I am outside in the world. I'm just as free when I have no money in the bank account as I am when it's full. I'm just as free when I'm single as I am when I'm married. It's not about my experience. It's about understanding what's been done for me and who's done it. So listen to this. The jailer comes running in and he's like, man, this is it. They told me not to let these people out. I put them all the way in the inner prison. I tied up their hands and their feet. All the doors are open. They're going to kill me, so I might as well kill myself. See, bondage. Even though he thinks he's free, he's a Roman citizen, and he has authority, and he's an actual jailer, right? He has a position of authority. He thinks he's free. You know what the reality is? He's bound. He's being controlled by these people, and he's willing to lose his life for it. He's going to kill himself. And then Paul and Silas scream out to him, don't hurt yourself. We're still here. And listen to what it does to this man. He says, you can almost hear him. We know what the question he asks is, what must I do to be saved? But you know what he's really saying? How can I know the freedom that you know? There is nothing in this world that makes sense to me that prisoners would have the doors open and their chains fall off and they wouldn't leave. 
There's no point of reference for that as a jailkeeper. His whole life, all he's seen is people wanting to get out and dying in prison. And now he sees these people who can get out and say, we're alive already. He says, I want that. I want that. That's a freedom I don't know. That's a deliverance I don't know. That's a hope that I don't know. That's a joy that I don't know. I want it. How can I have it? How can I be saved because I'm drowning even though I look free because I'm on this side of the cell? I'm just as bound as you guys are inside the cell. And then Paul says the same thing that needs to be said to everybody who's bound. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. It's a condition, not an experience. He didn't tell them, hey, sing with us. He didn't tell them, hey, uh, we're going to do a special prayer over you. He didn't say, hey, we gotta, we're just going to keep talking to you till you feel something. Tell me when you feel something. Tell me when you feel something. No, he just said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. How many times in scriptures does it say, when he met Philip, when he met the Ethiopian, he was reading, he said, he started preaching Jesus to him at that scripture. When Jesus came back and they're walking the road to Emmaus, two men are reading the scriptures. It says Jesus opened the scriptures and preached himself to them. Amen. When Peter went into Cornelius' house, it says that he just opened the scriptures and started preaching Jesus to them. All you have to do is tell people who Jesus is because he's the only way, the only truth, the only life. He's the only one that can deliver. That's right. And they're all set free. Close, last scripture. And it's going to tie in uh, to our time of, of communion and worship before we leave. This idea that you've got to be delivered from sin, you've got to be delivered from death, and that should be our only focus for ourselves and for other people. That's got to be the foundation of everything else. All the way back in Exodus, chapter 12, verse 3. God says to Moses, speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, on the tenth day of this month, every man will take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. If the household's too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. Isn't it funny? How many lambs do you think that is for two million people broken into families? Just, just throw out a number. Two million people, even if you say it's a family of four. So let's divide two million by four. That's 500,000 lambs, right? I ain't a mathematician. E equals MC squared was a couple series ago. Let's just say it's a lot of lambs. Somebody say amen. amen. And listen to what this says, though. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. Take it from the sheep or the goats. Keep it till the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. It. Because it's one lamb. Because we know who it represents, right? We ain't talking 500,000 lambs. We're talking one lamb, the lamb of God. The same one that I just read to you where John said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Kill it at twilight. They'll take some of the blood, put it on the, on the two doorposts, and on the lintel of the house where they eat it. Then they shall eat of the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat of it. Do not eat it raw nor boil it, 
boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire. Its head, excuse me, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. Thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, so you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So Jesus is the Lamb of God. It's his blood that covers and delivers us and allows us to be passed over. If there's no blood covering your door, your entry into God and into uh, um, the heavenly realm, then you will not be passed over. You will die and be judged like everybody else. The only way to be delivered is by Jesus and by his blood and by having an understanding of that and having that lamb as your lamb and covering yourself in the blood. Nobody could do that for you. You wonder why we can't just come in and say, oh, I'm just going to pray so hard for Mary, Lord. I'm going to cover her with your blood. No, she's got to do that herself. Oh, I want it so bad for my kids. Man, you better worry about yourself too. Cover yourself. It's the blood that allows you to be passed over. So in God, he has this people, the children of Israel, and they're bound. They're slaves in Egypt. How does he deliver them? It's a spiritual deliverance before it's a physical deliverance. They had to be covered by the blood. It was an actual condition. We've been covered and we've been passed over. When everybody else is dying, we're still living. Not because they deserved it. Think about how bad a lot of those people probably were. They didn't deserve it. All they did is take the lamb and put the blood over their door and they got passed over. It's the same with us. We take the lamb, we're covered in the blood, we're passed over, we're delivered, and then what did God tell them? Listen, when you eat this meal, he said, hey, tie your belt tight. Put your shoes on and get your staff. You know why? Because after I deliver you spiritually and after death passes you over, I'm going to deliver you physically. You're no longer going to have to stay in Egypt. You're no longer going to have slave masters and taskmasters over you and around you. I will bring physical deliverance into your life, but first comes the spiritual. First comes the blood. Many of us have been running and searching and seeking, and we're going to talk about some of those other areas of deliverance during this series, but man, first things first. Somebody say amen. Spiritual deliverance first. Close your eyes with me this morning. You can stay seated. Just, just, I just want you to really listen and really think about yourself and think about your salvation. Earlier I said when I got saved, I felt like Everything was just literally going to disappear and I was going to be in the presence of God because nothing else mattered. I want you to picture yourself kind of in that place. Imagine if everything is gone now. Nobody's sitting next to you. The walls and everything else in this room have disappeared. There you are, just an endless open space. And this is your condition. This is your circumstance. And God asks you a simple question. Do you want to be delivered? See, your sin that leads to death 
It has nothing to do with your life here on earth. It has nothing to do with your circumstances, what you have and what you don't have, the friends you had and the family you had, and all that kind of stuff. None of that matters. What matters right now is you are just here in my presence, and I'm asking you, do you understand that you need to be delivered? Do you understand that it's not about any of that other stuff? You were born into slavery. You're tied hand and feet. I'm knocking on the door of your heart, and I'm the only one that can set you free. All those other areas of your life, if you got what you wanted, if they changed, if they got better, you'd still be bound in this area. It's in your blood. What you don't want to do, you do. It's no longer you who does it, but it's sin that lives in you. I will come inside of you and take it, the Lord says. See, that's why they had to eat the Passover lamb. It had to get inside of them. That's why Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. And he doesn't say, if you open, I'll let you out. What he says is, if you open, I'll come in. It's not about the outside world. It's about what's going on inside your heart, what's going on inside your mind. He says, let me in, let me in, let me in, let me in. If you're here, heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Between you and the Lord, man, is there anybody who wants to let him in? Amen. Anybody else? Let me in. Tired of the hard knock life? Tired of making the same decisions, acting the same way, looking the same way, sitting the same way, talking the same way. Let me in. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Anybody else this morning, just raise your hand. Thank you, Lord. Amen, I see you, sis. In the story of Exodus, it goes on to say this in verse 14. The day, this day shall be a memorial for you. Keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. Keep it as a feast by everlasting ordinance. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. He says, as I pass over you, and as instead of giving you death, I give you life because of my blood. He says, I don't want you to ever forget this. You have to remember it. Remember this day. Remember this season. Make it a week long, seven days, completely understanding what it means to be passed over and then to be set free. This unleavened bread that you're going to be able to eat. Regular bread will go bad as you take this first week walk into the wilderness. But this unleavened bread, it's like crackers. It'll sustain you. As I set you free physically, like I've already set you free spiritually. So you fast forward into the New Testament and then you listen to the words of Jesus. It sounds so similar. In Luke 22, it says, Jesus took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Same thing they said to those who had been delivered and set free out of Egypt. What do they say? This is a memorial. Keep doing this every year. Do it in remembrance of me. And then Jesus comes. He says, this is the real bread. This is my body that's broken for you. Take it. Eat it. Let it get inside of you. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. I am your salvation. I have conquered death and the grave. 
Don't ever forget. John 6, 35, he says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. There is no way to the Father except through me. There is no other life. Why? Because I am the bread of life. I set you free and I sustain you. Lord, for those that would give their life to you this morning, we thank you for their deliverance. We thank you that when sin was such a horrible taskmaster that bound them and controlled them, made them live in fear, when it was out of control, when they would do things, whether they wanted to do them or not, even though in their heart they, they really wanted to do something different, they couldn't because they were bound and controlled. We thank you that that's all come to an end this morning. We thank you that you still deliver. We thank you that the same way Paul and Silas were able to look at a young woman who was bound and enslaved and say, in the name of Jesus, come out of her, and she was delivered. We thank you that you do the same things today. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. We don't have to remain bound. We don't have to remain enslaved. We don't have to be controlled by sin and by the devil, Lord God. There's only two. Either you reign and rule in our lives or the devil does. And all we have to do is open the door when we hear you knocking. You're so good, Lord. David cried out, deliver me. Paul cried out, who will deliver me from this body of death? You always have been and you always will be the answer. It's by Jesus alone. By no other name must we be or can we be saved. We thank you for giving us that. We thank you for becoming sin for us and taking the sin of the world, Lord. As we receive communion this morning, God, we don't do it in ignorance. We don't take it lightly. We don't see it as just this thing that we do as Christians. We understand that as we take it, we're saying you are the bread of life. We understand that as we take it, we're saying your blood has already covered us. We've been passed over. As we drink this wine, as we drink this juice, we say, I'm filled with the blood of Christ, holy and righteous and sinless am I now because of you. And we take it and we drink. As we take this bread, we say that we will not be sustained by the bread that the world offers. We'll be sustained by you because you are the bread of life, Lord God. Our physical situations and circumstances, wants and needs, the haves and the have-nots, none of that matters, Lord, because you who have set us free have made us free indeed. We don't care about what may look like a prison in our physical lives, Lord. If the gates were to swing wide open right now and the shackles were to fall off, we'd sit right here and say, it's time for communion. Where do I need to go? We believe that with that spirit, Lord God, and with those actions, many who are still bound like that jailer was will look to us and say, how can I have the freedom you have? What must I do to be saved? Lord, give us the strength and the confidence to say, if you believe in Jesus, you will be saved and so will your household, Lord. Bless this communion time. Bless this time of worship. Bless the time of prayer. Bless those who gave their life to you this morning, Lord God, who want to be set free and delivered, God, in a way that only you can. Have your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen, amen. You guys are welcome to worship. You're welcome to pray. If you want prayer, you can come and get it. If you're ready for communion, you can take that. Thank God for your deliverance this morning. Hallelujah, Lord.